Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we watched Do the Right Thing. On the hottest day of the year, on a street in the Bedford-Stuyvesant section of Brooklyn, everyone's hate and bigotry smolders and builds until it explodes into violence. I hyped this movie up a lot. You did. And it still fucking delivers. It's great. I really enjoyed this one. It's an incredible fucking movie, man. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I saw this... I saw this during my important movie phase. Okay. And it really affected me. Okay. I saw this before the Eric Garner stuff, which, Mm -hmm. like, for me... What happened during the Michael Brown incident really felt like it was such a huge moment. But Eric Garner was the first one, I think, for me that really pushed it over the edge of like, this is just completely fucked beyond belief. Mm -hmm. But before any of that, this movie planted that seed Mm -hmm. because it's so real. Oh, yeah. Like, I remember like we're watching this. I was like, when was Rodney King in relation to this? Ronnie King's 1991. And and the LA riots and all of that. And I was just like, wow. <laughs> and then, you know, a, a little behind the, the scenes here, we had originally intended to do Spike Lee. Like we had talked about doing Spike Lee in the beginnings of 2020. Mm-hmm. And then we're like, yeah, no, we can't do that right now. No, we 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 need to step off and do something different. After George Floyd, it felt like it was just not the right moment to try to dive through that from our perspective. When- oh, absolutely. And I'm glad just for like the uh, that we we waited. But at the same time, it's like, oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> like, wow. It's it's like it's heartbreaking, but like also like, yeah, I get it. Well, and as we're going to find out, not only does this movie echo constantly throughout the ages but itself it was an echo of things that had been happening for years before oh yeah and that's the incredibly frustrating thing but what makes it such an important flashpoint and also the other part of this being it's a really entertaining movie Mm -hmm. it's difficult but it's also very entertaining very fun and accessible and like no, this is not a movie I would show my kids, but it's a movie I'll show my teenagers. Yeah. And it's a movie that I'm like, if your kids are like 14 or 15, sit them down and make them watch this because it's important. I I, I think it, it's a very good illustration of like what's happening while also being a fabulous movie. And beyond the resonance of it, it's also just a perfect portrait of a neighborhood and all the different things going on in there. It's got a West Side Story feel, but also with that extra bit of Spike flavor to it. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, it's all taking place over one single day. Yeah, that's the thing that I keep forgetting that, like, this is one day. Yep. It's one day in the life in Bed-Stuy. And it wouldn't hit as hard as it does if they didn't spend the time getting to know all of these characters in the neighborhood. Yeah, they do a really good job with that. And as frustrating as it is, and as hard and dated as some of the things are, I also feel like that almost makes it better to some degree, because Spikes, he wanted to tell the story as he knew it right then in his neighborhood. 
And like, yes, that could feel wrong or offensive mm-hmm. in some ways. But on the other hand, that's what he would see every day when he went outside. So it's yeah. like, well, you need to that, know what it's really fucking like. Yeah, that was his experience. That was his neighborhood. I love the whole like this. This is this is my neighborhood. This is my home. Yeah, I love that stuff. And like, there's so much pain depicted, but there's also just like so much like this is this is my house like this is mine you're not gonna fuck this up mm-hmm. it's look this is widely regarded as his masterpiece I which again it. we should point out this is his third movie i don't know how that's possible many people regard this as his masterpiece mm-hmm. um the budget for this movie was 6.5 million dollars which even in 1989 standards does not feel like a lot for the amount of set pieces and stuff we get yeah but here's the thing he filmed in Bedstuy. Yeah. So he had the location perfect. He didn't have to bother. Yeah, there's like the set dressing wasn't like a thing that needed to happen and it's present day. Yeah, it just was and it's uh it's it's so good. The US gross was 27,500,000. Globally it made about 37,300,000. This is going to be a trend we talk about with Spike. His movies don't necessarily make the most money because they're hard movies. He doesn't pull punches. No, but he's not he's not trying to. He's like, I'm going to tell this story, whether y'all like it or not. This is what I'm doing. And Hollywood really doesn't know how to market his movies. They never have. I think they got better, especially with Black Klansmen. They have in more recent years, for sure. The critics came out for this movie, and many of them said that the movie... Uh, was bad and dangerous because it would incite anger and riots in the black population. Ugh. Several going so far as to say that the movie would cause such issues that blood would be on Spike's hands because of this film. Oh. Notably, these were white critics. Yeah, eat a dick. <laughs> uh, Spike defended the movie, stating that if white people could contain themselves from inciting riots after seeing Schwarzenegger movies, black people could do it after watching this. Back. <laughs> Um, and one of the few white critics that got praise from him was none other than Roger Ebert. He was one of the few white critics in the mainstream media who actually understood the message of the film. And it is definitely in his great movies list. Yeah. So Roger got it. Roger knew. Originally, Paramount was going to produce this film. Mm-hmm. And the, but the studio wanted the climax reined in. Hmm. In an original version of the script, as he was pitching it, Sal would tell Mookie after their, you know, fight after everything's burned down that he understood Mookie had to do the right thing. And in the discussions with Paramount, according to Spike, the studio demanded at the last moment that the two hug after they have that line. Spike got out of that meeting, said it's a Hollywood bullshit ending, dropped the movie from Paramount, Mm -hmm. and Universal was all too eager to pick it up instead. Never am. Again, another thing about Spike Lee, the man is not going to let you fuck up his movie. Yeah, he's he's making his movie, whether you like it or not. And in recent years, he's he's had actual good criticism of like, yeah, but I don't think he made a good movie. It's like, that's fair, but it's Spike. He's going to do what he's going to do. Spike's going to Spike. Good or bad. Yeah, valid. Good for him. After its premiere at Cannes, the film caused a ton of controversy mainly from continued white critics. The president of Universal, Thomas Philip Pollock, stood by the movie publicly. There were repeated calls to pull it from theaters for fear of inciting riots. 
<laughs> now, Pollock, a white dude, was under bodyguard protection because he had that year also helped make The Last Temptation of Christ. Oh, yeah. Like... He was getting death threats from that. Uh, okay. And he stood up and said, yeah, I'm, I'm, we're, we're putting out this movie. The pressure was so high that Spike even told Pollock, hey, I understand if you have to delay. And Pollock said, no, we're putting this out. Summer 1989. It's happening. All right. A studio exec did a good thing for once. Oh, good for Dan. And, and the rest is history. All right. Let's talk about the writing. Okay. You know who wrote this. It's Spike Lee. It's Spike Lee. What do we think about the writing of this movie? It's awesome. I, 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 I don't think I have any notes. <laughs> I don't, like I think my only note is like more Rosie Perez. <laughs> yeah, well, always. <laughs> but also nobody knew who Rosie Perez was at this point. I don't so. care. She's the shit. <laughs> so like more. The complexity of every character. Mm -hmm. And I mean every. Even the ones that feel one note and potentially difficult. Yeah. Like the guy selling pictures. I know it feels weird, but also... The 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 flip side of it is I'm like, yeah, but that's probably a guy that Spike knew in the neighborhood. Yeah. And you're just like, there's such intricacies with every single person, mm -hmm. even when they feel like cartoon characters. Bugging out as a cartoon character. Uh, fair. I mean, Giancarlo's really playing up the hotel. Oh, yeah. And yet... There's levels. There's levels to every single person. It doesn't matter how much time they have on screen. Mm -hmm. And then he spreads it out so well by you sort of have main characters, but really the only reason you have main characters is that they're the ones that drive the plot. Yeah. But that's not the point of that character. Like, that's the only reason that you get more focus on them is that the story has to keep moving. And you're never bored. Oh, no, not even a little bit. I just... Uh, the movie moves very well. Uh, such a perfect script. It's so good. How about this? Spike wrote the whole movie in about two weeks. Okay. <laughs> right. It's one of those you just have the idea and then you're like, well, there it is. Just put it on the page. You just go. Hammer it. He joked about taking the idea from a heat wave from an unproduced script for Predator 2. Okay. Which may have been, may have been part of it. Like he saw something about a heat wave there and was like, throw it in there. Quote, I just thought, you know, Predator 2 had a lot to say about race relations. So I took that, you know, like race is the predator in my joint. That's like a really great like flip. I love you, Spike. I mean, yeah, I, I could also see him just being like, whatever. I'm just saying spouting bullshit. But like, it's good bullshit, man. A little bit. I'm sure I'm sure that probably like jumped into it. I'm sure that was like, ooh, that's a great story idea. Maybe I twist that around. But what it really was inspired by was the Howard Beach incident. Hmm. Content warning for some severe racism. Yeah. On December 20th, 1986, a mob of angry white men chased and beat three black men who left a pizzeria in Howard Beach's Italian-American community in New York. The mob forced a victim, Michael Griffith, to run onto the Belt Parkway where he was hit by a car and killed. Now, this is all going on right around the time he gets done making She's Gotta Have It. Mm -hmm. So he recalled the protests led by Al Sharpton, who called for black Americans to boycott white-owned pizzerias. That was a direct inspiration for Buggin' Out's boycott. Okay. But all of this was the direct inspiration for the pizzeria 
and the relations with Italian American community and all of that. And then from there, it just mushroomed out into this whole vision of all these cultures shoving together Mm -hmm. in a very small space. Like the thing to me about all of this stuff is that it automatically has tension built into it. There's already dramatic tension Mm -hmm. because you have a bunch of people with different backgrounds shoved into a really tight space and then you throw on top of it a heat wave. Yeah. It writes itself at that point. (laughs) You don't have to worry about everybody being tense and a little bit wild and weird. (laughs) And then within those different communities, you also have different tensions. (laughs) Like, we can talk all all we want about Mookie and then the guys on the corner and then all the, the young dudes hanging around, but also just the three dudes in the pizzeria. Yeah. And they're completely different views of the community that they're in. Yeah, because their experiences are different. It's so good. Yeah, that was great. Spike has stated that in his view, the reason Mookie threw the garbage can was very simply because he saw his really good friend murdered by cops. Mm. Some people theorize he did it to actually save Sal, Pino, and Vito from the mob Mm. to get them to focus their anger on the store instead. He said that was never his intention, but he likes the fact that that moment has sparked so many interpretations. Yeah. And it's true. that It's such a beautiful moment. Mm -hmm. Because when it comes down to it, you see him throw that trash can. Mm It's the moment that we've seen every time stuff's happened, when the, the third precinct got burned, when the protests happened in Ferguson, when all of it has gone down, it comes to the point of there isn't any other choice. This is what has to happen now. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants stuff like this to happen, but when you don't give people a choice, this is what occurs. Yep. And if there's anything that seeing the movie the first time taught me, it was that sometimes there is no other choice but to burn some shit to the ground because you've got to get somebody's attention. Yeah. And you've got to get rid of that anger. Mm-hmm. Ugh. It makes me emotional just thinking about that scene mm-hmm. because it hit so hard the first time I ever saw it. Yeah. Some of the other fun quotes and, and notices here, Rahim's speech to the love and hate rings that he has on his knuckles are an homage to the preacher from the Night of the Hunter who has love and hate tattooed on his knuckles. Mm-hmm. The title comes from a Malcolm X quote that says, you've got to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And of course, as Spike loves to do, he gives us a quote from both MLK and Malcolm X. Yeah. Right at the end, which is like, yeah, Spike knows. It's a, it's a complex issue. Oh, yeah. Like, it's, it's not just one thing or it's this or nothing. It's a very complex issue. There, there is a value to what Dr. King preached, and there is an equal value to what Malcolm X preached. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And there is a time and place for both. Yep. The first line of the film is Wake Up, which happens to be the last line of Spike's previous film, School Days. Mm, Okay. And finally, when DeMeyer reminisces about a hot day in Snow Hill, Alabama, well, Spike is referencing his father's hometown in Snow Hill, Alabama. I should also say that just recently, Spike's father passed away. Hmm. About a month ago, Bill Lee, who scored this film, scored She's Gotta Have It, and uh, has been involved in a lot of his early movies, he recently just passed away. All right, let's talk about our directing. Oh, yeah, it's Spike Lee. 
Yay, Spike Lee. What do we think about the directing of this movie? Good job. A plus at work. You've got so many great shots, mm-hmm. so many unique shots. Just the intro of putting Public Enemy over the credits with Rosie Perez dancing. Yeah, that was fun. But with this one, it's it's this really interesting thing of it starts off as just like, oh, we're just going to dance to this. But then as it goes along, she's getting angrier and angrier almost. Well, it's like, oh, she's just dancing. It's like, oh, no, she's working something out. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, it helps when you have a song like Fight the Power to blast over that. Oh, yeah. Which will not be the last time a Public Enemy song gets gets referenced here in, a Sp- in the Spike Lee series. But goddamn, Chuck D. I don't know. He took the opportunity to really just like go for it with the shots, mm-hmm. which we saw him sort of do. And she's got to have it. Um, but he, he 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 that was a lot more composed. Mm-hmm. Whereas this, you know, he's willing to throw the camera at weird angles because the tension's so high. Yeah. Like every five seconds, the camera is off angle, Dutch angle down pointing up at people it's off to a weird side as people are talking it Mm -hmm. just always puts you in that everything feels weird and off yeah and then you know all of just all of the light of like getting that sunlight beating down on everyone Mm -hmm. so it's just like it always feels so hot (laughs) this is a movie that you should crank up the temperature on your ac and just turn the fans off and sweat it out a little Well, Spike had been offered the Run DMC Blaxploitation Spaghetti Western, Tougher Than Leather. Okay. Eventually, Rick Rubin, the band's producer, decided to direct that film. Spike based the opening dance to Fight the Power off the opening credits of Bye Bye Birdie. Okay, I get it. Well, with the solid background and just Anne-Margaret in the frame. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I get that reference. That's okay, cool. Here's what I love about Spike. Spike will pull all sorts of obscure references, Mm -hmm. but then he will make them fit what he wants them to fit. He's like the best version of Tarantino. He is way more thought out than I think Tarantino has ever been. Exactly. It's all, well, it's also very Scorsese. Oh, yes. It's very Marty, which again, Marty was his teacher, but it's very Marty to be like, okay, yeah, I'm going to take all these different musicals, movies, and references. But then I'm going to make them completely mine and you're never going to know it was from that mm-hmm. until I tell you. That sequence was actually written especially for the movie and took eight hours to film in total, which okay. seems like a lot. But it makes sense when you figure out all the different angles that they needed for that dance sequence. Yeah. Spike did take a single block in Brooklyn to film the whole movie. Oh. And to keep the experience positive for everyone who lived on the block, he even hired a few residents to help with the production. Good. So he went around. Everybody was involved. If they, you know, if they wanted to be a part of the production, great. If not, he was making sure he listened to everybody and didn't, he didn't want to ruin everybody's experience in the neighborhood. He wanted it to be like, hey, it's a block party. We're just filming yeah. a movie. Spike used the paramilitary wing of the Nation of Islam, the Fruit of Islam, as facilitators and crew protection during shooting in Bed-Stuy. He also refused to work with the NYC unions like the Teamsters until they agreed to employ more people of color, Mm. which they did. Yeah. Now, it is is hard to praise someone for fighting unions unless it's Spike Lee saying, you want union work? Get black guys in here and people of color. Yeah. 
that's and you uh, know what? I'm fine with that. That's that's telling a union you're doing it wrong. Yep. Like, yay union, but union got to be good. It's true. Can't, can't fuck over your own people. Sal's Pizzeria did not exist before shooting. It was constructed on an empty lot by the production company and torn down after shooting rat. Okay. And finally, to get the heat of the day in the camera, cinematographer Ernest Dickerson lit a can of Sterno and held it underneath the camera lens. Oh, okay. That's cool. The heat then drifted up and filtered between the lens and the action to give us the heat waves. Cool. Dickerson also made sure they were shooting on an east-west street in Bed-Stuy so that the light would be constant on each side of the street as they filmed. Very smart. Ernest Dickerson's an amazing cinematographer. He's really fucking good. And that leads us to our cast. And oh boy, do we have a cast. We do. It's very cool. We start top build here. Danny Aiello as Sal. Mm -hmm. Danny Aiello is one hell of a character actor. Before this, he was in Bang the Drum Slowly, The Godfather Part 2, Defiance, Fort Apache, The Bronx, Once Upon a Time in America, Papa Don't Preach, Radio Days, and Moonstruck. After this... He was in Harlem Nights, Jacob's Ladder, Hudson Hawk, Ruby, Leon the Professional, Ready to Wear, Two Days in the Valley, and Lucky Number Slevin. What do we think of Danny Aiello in this movie? He's great. This is such an amazing, understated performance. Mm -hmm. Out of everybody in this movie, it's him and Spike who keep things just very plain. Mm -hmm. Now, he gets angry because he's hot. And people are coming into his restaurant and bugging the shit out of him. Yeah. I think what's so fascinating, though, is he's got one son who's a horrible racist. Yep. He's got another son who actually, like, wants to be a part of that community. Mm-hmm. And he's in the middle who just wants to do things the way he's done it forever. Yep. And it's not until the very peak moment that he finally lets loose his actual prejudice. Yeah. He keeps it buried and buried and buried, and then it explodes. Mm-hmm. And he can't hold it back anymore. It's interesting. Danny admitted that he almost turned the role down because he was afraid of it being a lazy stereotype of Italian-Americans. Mm-hmm. And it's not. And, uh, and I think Spike worked with him on that, but I think that's what he brought to. Yeah. Is that he said, I'm not going to be a caricature. I yeah. refuse to fall into that stereotype because... You know, I I can understand having that fear of like, so you're going to make this movie all about that. You're going to have me working in a pizzeria. Come on. Yeah. But it was like, no, 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 you don't understand. That's exactly why we want you (laughs) because you won't do that. And he's such a good actor that he pulls it off so well. Mm -hmm. He's one of the few guys out of that group that I think brings that understatement to it. Yeah. Now, the big who could have been better was Robert De Niro. Mm hmm who also would have done an amazing job. He would have. He would have definitely been like crankier, but... Well, De Niro was afraid of it. He felt it was too similar to many of his other parts. And De Niro might have been crankier. I don't think so. This is still just before older De Niro. Yeah, no, I get that. Like when we talked, he was really the final movie where he was still like in his full De Niro powers. And that's when he started to shift to the older guy, De Niro. However... Lee met with De Niro the night after the Howard Beach incident Hmm. in 86. Because, again, he knows Marty. So I'm sure he'd met Robert De Niro. (laughs) And Spike and and Robert had a very long discussion about the growing animosity between the two communities. 
how the tensions were continuing to grow. Mm-hmm. Lee was approaching him saying, I think it would be really good for you, one of the biggest figures in the Italian-American community, to be seen in the sympathetic role. Mm-hmm. And say, like, you're complex and you have a bad moment, but you're still kind of the good guy. He didn't want to repeat the roles on, uh, eventually, but De Niro did consider it. Like, it wasn't I- like he just flatly refused. Mm-hmm. He would have done an amazing job, too. Do not get me wrong. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. it's that thing of, Robert De Niro can do anything if he really wants to. <laughs> yeah. Two other who could have been better here, Joe Mantegna. Who, I, not for Sal. Maybe for one of the other guys, but not for Sal. Mm-hmm. And Joe Pesci. Joe Pesci. Okay. We've seen him be understated. Him and Raging Bull was so good. Yeah. As the, the, the sadder, shy guy. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Danny Aiello did an amazing job. He did. We then have a true legend. Ossie Davis as DeMayer. Now, before this, Ossie Davis was in The Cardinal, Shock Treatment from 1964, did tons of TV movies, and was in School Days. Mm-hmm. After this, he was in Joe vs. the Volcano, Jungle Fever, 1992's Gladiator, Malcolm X, Cop and a Half, The Stand from TV, The Client, 12 Angry Men from 1997, Dr. Doolittle, the Eddie Murphy version, Bubba Hotep, Badass, She Hate Me, and the L word. What do we think of Ossie Davis in this movie? Awesome. DeMayer's such a great character. Mm-hmm. And not, uh, he's a drunk. Yeah. But not in the way you think. Mm-mm. There is a certain kind of drunk who's just the bumbling fool. Mm-hmm. There is then the kind of alcoholic who, in order to just function, they have to have alcohol. Mm-hmm. And that is the point at which DeMayer has hit. Yeah. But what you see is that once he has gotten his beer, he is a beautiful person who wants nothing to do but help everyone. Mm -hmm. Just all his lines, all his lines to everybody. Do the right thing. Is that it? (laughs) Yeah. Boom. Come in, doctor. He's got stories for days. And if any if anyone will listen to him, yeah. he's there. He's trying to keep you off from doing something you shouldn't do. That's really what's going on. Yeah. He's the one person who's seen enough to know how this can all go bad. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to keep everybody from doing it. And nobody listens to him because mm-hmm. he's the mayor. Because he's the drunk. Except Mookie. Mookie listens. Mookie's Mookie, a good Mookie kid. wants to know what's up. Mookie is the neighborhood, you know? Mm-hmm. Who could have been better? James Earl Jones. Oh, I get that. Equally could have been good. But I think Ossie Davis is slightly better in this role. Some nuance that I haven't seen from Earl Jones. So... Like, not that he couldn't do it. It just, I haven't seen it before. James Earl Jones has such a big presence. Yeah. And Aussie, and the, the mayor needs to be in the background firmly. Yeah. Anyway, then we have to talk about Spike Lee as Mookie. I've talked about him two times already, but here he is acting again, and he's just great. Mm-hmm. Spike Lee, this kid, Spike Lee, like, barely out of college, in his 20s is going up against some of the best actors ever Mm -hmm. and just holding his own. 
Now, it, it it's the thing of, as we've said, Spike is really good about knowing how to write for himself. He uses himself very well. It's the smartest thing he knows how to do. If he's going to put himself in the movie, he's going to be a character that's close enough to him to play yep. so that he doesn't have to push that hard. Mm-hmm. It's that thing of like, he's not as, as ridiculous as he was in She's Gotta Have It. Mm-hmm. Like Mars is very silly. Mookie's more realistic, but it's still all of that same charm oh, yeah. of that real dry, but continuing to just nudge and be annoying kind of guy. Mm-hmm. The, the way he deals with Tina and is just like, come on, come on, shut mm-hmm. up, leave me alone. <laughs> uh, he's very good. All right. Then a guy we've talked about a few times named uh, John Turturro as Pino. I love John Turturro. This is kind of before he, anybody knew who he was. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. He's so good. How good is he in this movie? Mm-hmm. Like, it, it is easy to play the bad guy in some ways, and he's playing a character that it's so easy to play. Mm-hmm. But because it's John Turturro, it just feels like you believe he's this guy. Yeah. Not that he feels like John Turturro. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There's, there's something about he brings the extra level of commitment that makes you go, oh, shit. Mm-hmm. Like the way he interacts with his brother, and you're just like, oh, this guy's like really fucked up. Yep. Who could have been better? Matt Dillon. Interesting. I don't know. I, I, I don't think so. I feel. I don't have anything against Matt Dillon, Matt Dillon but I just like, I don't know. I mean, but cast the Italian American guy. Yeah. If you got to pick between those two. And finally, in her film debut, Rosie Perez as. Tina. After this, Rosie Perez was in Night on Earth, White Men Can't Jump, Fearless, The Road to El Dorado, Pineapple Express, The Other Guys, Go Diego Go, Pitch Perfect 2, She's Gotta Have It on TV, Birds of Prey, and The Flight Attendant. She is in The Flight Attendant. What do we think of Rosie Perez in this movie? I think she's a treasure. <laughs> I mean, she's always a treasure, but... Even more so. It's also funny because every mental image we get of Rosie Perez came from this fucking movie. It really does. Like, Rosie Perez's whole cultural personality was set up by this movie, which is funny because she's actually giving a much more nuanced performance than I think people realize. Yeah. She's a Puerto Rican woman Mm -hmm. who has a, a kid with this guy who just continues to never show up. And granted, some of that's not exactly his fault, but also some of it is. Oh, yeah. And she has a mother who hates him and is not particularly fond of her. And all she wants is her boyfriend and to take care of her baby. That's Mm -hmm. it. Yeah. That's all she fucking wants. And that seems too hard to do in bed style. But like the thing I like is like she's not written to be weak. She's not written to be like just like a cliche. No. Like, I, which I love because it would have been so easy for her to be that way. I told you I am not going to babysit for you, and that's it. What are you talking about? Yesterday you said you were going to do it, and now today you're changing your mind? No, I'm not going to give you the hell that I want to get out of here. Like, I could do anything for you, but you So it's funny, Rosie got cast during a birthday party that Spike was hosting for himself in L.A. When the song Debut came on, which was from school days, Mm -hmm. a spontaneous butt contest started. (laughs) 
According to Spike, he saw Rosie dancing on a speaker and yelled at her to come down, afraid she was going to fall off and get hurt, and then he'd get sued. (laughs) Security had to force her down, and she laid into Spike with a lengthy curse fest with her full Puerto Rican Brooklyn voice. Love it. And he was in such awe of the presence, he immediately says, you got to be in this movie. Perez recalls it slightly differently. She said that Lee started the contest himself to see who had the biggest butt. Mm-hmm. And she thought Spike was hitting on her and then just tried to ignore him until she found out he actually wanted to cast her in the movie. Mm-hmm. So regardless, this worked out pretty well. Unfortunately, the sequence in the bedroom was her first ever nude scene. Mm-hmm. But her face is not shown because she was not comfortable. In that moment, she said she was crying. She felt very exploited. And for years later, she felt she was very angry at Spike for for the scene because mm. he continued to push it a little bit. Mm. She did later forgive him. Okay. Not a great moment from Spike. No. It's very interesting, that, that whole scene where you're just like, damn, there's no actual sex going on and this is hot. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's talk about some Arpons. Random people of nope. Ruby D as mother sister. This is actually the wife of Ossie Davis, mm-hmm. which makes Demare and mother sister's relationship even more adorable. <laughs> yes. Giancarlo Esposito as Buggin' Out. Little baby Giancarlo mm-hmm. with his crazy hair. Bill Nunn as Radio Rahim. He is a favorite of Spike's. This won't be the last time we see him. Uh, But he also had a featured role as one of the police detectives in the original Spider-Man movies. Mm. Richard Edson as Vito, the little brother. He is a recognizable character actor, and you'd most recognize him as the garage attendant from Ferris Bueller. (laughs) Paul Benjamin as ML. He is one of the prisoners who worked with Clint Eastwood to escape from Alcatraz. Mm -hmm. Frankie Faison as Coconut Sid. These are all the guys on the corner. He is the landlord from Coming to America and the orderly running the lockup for Silence of the Lambs. Mm, yep. And Robin Harris as Sweet Dick Willie. He was a comedian who actually just passed away the year after this movie. He had already had a run with I'm Gonna Get You Sucka, Harlem Nights, House Party, and Mo Better Blues and probably would have gone on to be like a huge deal in black comedy mm. if he hadn't died. Joy Lee as Jade. This is, of course, Spike's actual sister playing Mookie's sister. He loves to put the family in, man. Oh, yeah. Miguel Sandoval as Officer Ponte. He's been a big TV guy. He had a huge credited role on Medium. He's an instant that guy for television. And Rick Aiello playing Officer Long, the other police officer. This was Danny's son. He did a ton of smaller acting roles. He passed away in 2021 of pancreatic cancer not long after his father passed away. Hmm. John Savage as Clifton, the white guy on the bike who runs over bugging out shoes. He is one of the one of the guys in the deer hunter, along with De Niro and Christopher Walken. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Samuel L. Jackson as Mr. Senor Love Daddy. Hmm. This role is so fucking good. Mm-hmm. I love him in this movie. It's very funny. This is still relatively early in his career, but God, it's good. Mm-hmm. 
Wake up! Wake up, wake up, wake up! Up you wake, up you wake, up you wake, up you wake! This is Mr. Senior Love Daddy, your voice of choice. The world's only 12-hour strong man on the air. Here on We Love Radio 108 FM. The last on your dial, but first in your hearts. And that's the truth. Here I am. Am I here? You know it. It, you know. This is Mr. Senior Love Daddy doing the nasty to your ears, your ears to the nasty. Eyes only play the platters that matter, the matters they platter. And that's the Taroot Root. From the heart of Bed-Stuy, you're listening to... Martin Lawrence as C. This is his very first film role. Yeah, so like we're watching this and I was like, oh, I get where all that stuff from Martin came from. Because I had seen his show, like his television show a couple times, but like the font, the like the whole vibe, I was like, oh, this yeah. is where it all came from. I, I had no idea. Oh, yeah. Well, and and to be fair, Martin had been doing comedy for years before this. So he'd already been cutting his teeth. But like he he played this character and then just it all parlayed into mixing with the comedy for them to go, oh, he's a bankable like star. We have Leonard L. Thomas as Punchy. Uh, he's another one of Spike's favorite character actors who got his first role in School Days. Frank Vincent as Charlie. He is Phil from The Sopranos, Billy Bats from Goodfellas. If there's a mafia movie in recent memory, this guy was in it. Alan. Steve Park as Sonny, the Korean grocery owner. He's a well-credited actor who just recently appeared as Chef Nescafier in The French Dispatch. Okay. And finally, as a policeman, Nicholas Turturro, John's younger brother, who had a long run on NYPD Blue, and we might also see him a few more times in this series. Because mm. as we said, Spike likes to work with all of his favorite guys. <laughs> Awards. Awards. This movie was nominated for two Academy Awards. Best Supporting Actor for Danny Aiello and Best Original Screenplay for Spike Lee. At Con, it was nominated for the Palm d'Or. Instead, Steven Soderbergh won for Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Okay. Now, this led to some controversy specifically within the industry. Because if the critics didn't get it, Hollywood did. People who make movies recognized what a fucking huge deal this mm-hmm. movie was. And during the 1990 Oscars, while announcing the Best Picture nominees, Kim Basinger ignored the teleprompter and said, quote, We've got five great films here, and they're great for one reason, because they tell the truth. But there is one film missing from this list that deserves to be on it, because ironically, it might tell the biggest truth of all, and that's do the right thing. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so on to business. Spike would later thank her for it in a 2019 episode of the podcast Unspooled. Hmm. This is one of the biggest Oscars robberies ever. I don't, I don't disagree. And it's, it's all because of racism Great. and just fear. Yeah. The critics thought that this movie was just so scandalous and shocking and it would just inspire such hatred. And it was like, no, man. If anything, it inspires us to try to love better. 
Mr. Senior Love Daddy is there for a reason. However, it is one of only five films to be selected by the Library of Congress for addition to the National Film Registry in its first year of eligibility. Mm. Because it's a fucking big deal. Yeah, because it just should. The other movies that were elected were Raging Bull, Goodfellas, (laughs) Toy Story, and Fargo. Mm, Good choices. That's a hell of a film festival. That, yeah, that, cool. All right, trivia. Trivia. All of the scenes on the corner were improvised. Mm. I mean, duh. You got three guys just riffing. That's, you got to do that. However, Sal and Pino's scene midway through the film was also improvised. Um, where they're having the heart to heart and Sal stay and he's going to stay there. The scene was supposed to end after Smiley approached the window, but then they kept ad-libbing as Pino goes out and shoves him out of the way trying to get the pictures. And it's all Sal just hanging his head in shame. Originally, Spike wanted the opening song to be a take on the Black National Anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing. But once it came through, Spike rejected it and Public Enemy instead came up with Fight the Power using an Isley Brothers song of the same name. When choosing the wardrobe for Pino, Ruth Carter, who is designing the costumes here, this is still early on, Spike gave her her start. Mm -hmm. She said John Turturro, quote, was very much involved in choosing it, unquote. Um, Turturro wanted to have an experience with his mom in making the movie, which he had not gotten a chance to do, so he took her to go find his wardrobe for the film. Hmm, Interesting. But also to add to Pino's story, he wanted him to be in a distinctly Italian-American outfit, contrasting his wardrobe in the pizza store with the tank top and just trying to beat the heat versus his outsider status with the full black wear. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. Mr. Frank Sinatra was not particularly pleased to be included on Sal's Wall of Fame. Lee claimed that when he approached Sinatra to use his music for Jungle Fever... Sinatra told him, hell no, you burn my picture and do the right thing. They apparently worked it out. I love the fact that Frankie's not being a racist. He's just so egotistical. He's mad that they burned him. Yeah. Sounds like Sinatra. The graffiti on the wall behind Mookie and Jade, after Mookie tries to pull Jade away from Sal's, reads, Tawana told the truth, referencing the Tawana Brawley rape and abduction case from 1987. Brawley accused four white men of kidnapping and raping her over a four-day period in November 1987. Mm-hmm. On November 28th, she was found alive in a trash bag after missing for four days with racial slurs written on her body. Mm-hmm. A grand jury in October 1988 concluded she was not the victim of an assault and suggested that she might have created the appearance of having done so. A New York prosecutor that Brawley alleged as one of her attackers successfully sued Brawley and her advisors for defamation. She still asserts to this day she told the truth. It's a very complicated case that goes back Mm -hmm. and forth with a lot of different stories, but it's very easy to note that if somebody was accusing someone powerful in New York City of doing something, they could easily fight back, especially in 1989. Mm Mm-hmm. According to former President Obama, he and Michelle's first date was this movie, though apparently they were planning to see Driving Miss Daisy. Spike joked that their relationship might have never happened if Barack had chosen the other movie. I mean, I don't don't agree with that, per se. (laughs) Eh, Spike's going to take credit for whatever he can. 
And finally, after news of Eric Garner's murder in 2014 from an illegal chokehold, Lee posted a video intercutting the death of Radio Rahim and Eric Garner. Mm -hmm. However, that chokehold had already been inspired for this movie from the murder of Brooklyn resident and graffiti artist Michael Stewart in 1983 when he was murdered using an illegal chokehold by the cops. Hence the line from the movie, quote, they did it again, just like Michael Stewart, unquote. Mm. And that leads us to ratings. Rating five. <laughs> but to slow down, for every film, we have a specific rating system. Mm. For this movie, it's going to be trash cans. Trash cans. It's got to be. It's five. It's it's five trash cans. Yeah. It's like, a perfect movie. It's no, I, I have no notes. No notes, including the flaws. Yeah. There are flaws that today I would never put in this movie because there are certain things that's like that's just not reflective of where we are. But this movie was made in 1989. Mm -hmm. And this movie was made about a guy observing his own neighborhood, where he came from, all the stuff around there. Mm -hmm. And it feels like that. It feels like a block party with the caveat that it has a plot and it has characters and it has something very serious to say as well. And it's it, this is one of those few movies that I go, I promise you, if you see this movie, it will change you. Yeah. There's not that many out there. This is one of them. It is required viewing by everybody. Mm -hmm. So watch it. It's perfect. Yeah. So I think we've hit the peak of Spike early. Oh, okay. But now it's time to delve into some of the other stuff that he's done. Mm -hmm. Good, bad, indifferent. I don't know. So we are going to go to his next feature film. Oh, okay. In 1990, a little movie called Mo Better Blues. Mo Better Blues. Okay. Never seen it. Seen a couple of things about it. This is apparently his little ode to jazz. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't heard of this one, so. I don't know. I mean, it's Denzel. Okay. You can never be mad about a little Denzel, right? Not usually, no. All right. Well, until next time. Have a good movie. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thank you.